You're listening to VO Stories, episode 59. I'm your host, voiceover talent, mentor, and friend, Tina Zaremba. Today I'm talking with someone who grew up pretending he was a staff announcer for radio shows to now having voiced the character Flint for the cartoon G.I. Joe, to voicing movie trailers such as Inside Out and Kung Fu Panda, to narrating documentaries on Discovery, the History Channel, and so much more. I'm talking with the legendary and very down-to-earth Bill Ratner. Listen in as Bill shares his journey to voiceovers, the importance of being a really good listener, trends in voiceovers, the authentic voice, and way more. Here's our chat. So Bill, I have to ask the question that I ask every guest, and it's usually a story, what led you into voiceovers? This is a true personal story, Tina. I was five years old. My dad had just bought us our first TV. And my dad was an advertising guy. He was uh, uh, in the publishing business at the time at Better Homes and Gardens magazine. Hmm. And he had a wonderful habit of when we would watch TV together, he'd gather me and my brother and, we'd, and he would make fun of the commercials. Oh, yeah. Screaming yellow zonkers. Ah, those are good for you. Boy, screaming yellow. And so, he, you know, I grew up probably before I, I could even speak, hearing my father in the advertising business making fun of advertising on, on the radio and on television. He bought us our first TV, and they wheeled this gigantic thing into the living room. It looked like a small refrigerator. <laughs> and I remember that moment. There was some silly guy. You know, I'm Railroad Bob, and we'll be right back with more funny puppets and cartoons after this. And then, who must have been the staff announcer, came on and said, this commercial message will be 60 seconds long. And, you know, a 1955 Olds 88 came across the screen. And I ran into the kitchen. I said, Mom, I know what a minute is. And she said, oh, did you learn that in kindergarten today? I said, no, the man on TV said it. Six <laughs> seconds. This is an absolutely true story. And I don't think that I would have remembered this moment, or I don't think it would have meant anything to me. Had my father not been my great mentor and tutor about how silly and strange broadcast television was. You know, at that point on, I started imagining that I was a staff announcer. And I would sit there with my father's Gillette, empty Gillette razor dispenser that looked like a tiny walkie-talkie. And I'd stand on the back porch of my house talking to the trees. Do you hear me? This is an emergency broadcast. That's how it started. That is wild. So then in high school and going on, how did you pivot or continue on this path? Did you, was it that clear all along? You're like, okay, this is no, what I'm doing? No, not at all. And in, in high school, I didn't even do drama. You know, I was on the debate team and I worked in the newspaper. And because I always, I paid attention to radio and, and listened to Boss Jock Radio and loved that. When I was 12, I had a friend who was a real electronics geek. My friend John Waterhouse, who's a couple years older, and we formed the Brotherhood of Radio Stations. I was WCLO, named after my sixth grade teacher, Bob Close. And I ordered, I, I'm actually looking at a photo that I printed up from the internet of the Nightkit wireless broadcaster. Oh my God. Three vacuum tubes and a condenser on top. And you could broadcast, uh, you could pick your AM band. I was 13.30 AM. And it had a range, a broadcast range of about three and a half houses. <laughs> and I know this because I sent John Waterhouse out to do a broadcast test, uh, me on mic and he on a transistor radio to his ear. 
And he got to the third house and just sort of shrugged like, oh, sorry, I lost your signal. So, and this lasted for a couple of years. I mean, we were imitating, you know, radio announcers and being on each other's shows. And then by the time I got to high school, it, it just, I was interested in other things. And I never really got back to the idea of the business of broadcasting until I was in my mid-20s. And I had a, uh, I was doing theater in, in San Francisco Bay Area, and I had a, a job selling stuff over the telephone. And I took a job at a radio station selling small advertising packages in the suburbs of San Francisco. The guy was having a hard time finding somebody to work for so little money. And so I thought, okay, well, I could make a deal. And, and uh, I said, listen, I was in radio. I didn't tell him I was 12 years old at the time. <laughs> I said, I will take the job if the ads that I sell for Betty's Beauty Supplies or Barney's Phillips 76, if I can voice the ads, go into the production studio and do the voice for the ads. And he said, fine, 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 whatever. Take the job. So that's how I started in radio at KKIS 99 KDFM in Walnut Creek, California, doing Betty's Beauty Parlor just bought a $50 flight on our station. And boy, you've got to book it over to Betty's. You know, that's how it started. I was actually 30 years old at the time. From there, did you take that and submit that to an agent? I created the worst voiceover demo I've made in the history of mankind to the Ann Brebner Agency in San Francisco. I never got a call. I never got, I, I, and I never called her. I just thought, oh, okay, you have an agent. I literally, I, I, I never heard from her. I, she probably expected me as a new client to call her up and say, hey, I'd love to audition for whatever you got. And, you know, and let me, let me update my demo. I, I didn't do a damn thing because I had a staff job and I thought, well, who cares? Why do I want to drive over to San Francisco? You know, I keeping tapes of stuff I did and, and, uh, Finally, before I moved to L.A., uh, I put the second worst voiceover demo ever to be made together. Which <laughs> was, I think it was three 60-second radio commercials of me advertising the Concord Jazz Festival in Diablo Country and uh, out near, uh, for Concord Jazz Label. Yeah. And came to L.A., and a, and a friend who was in the sales department at uh, KKS 99, Ralph Pazella. Ralph, if you're out there, I love you, buddy. I owe my career to you, said, hey, I've got this friend named Johnny Rabbit, alias Don DiPietro, who teaches voiceovers in L.A. When you go there, you should take his class. And I said, literally, what are voiceovers? Mm -hmm. He said, well, you know, you, you just did 40 regional tags for Northern California CVS drugstores, and uh, you didn't get paid for it. The guy who did the voiceover of the spot you're tagging made probably about 250 bucks through the, through after, through the union. I went, oh, gee. So that's exactly what I did. I moved to LA and I called Johnny Rabbit and I got in his workshop and um, uh, he had been a big uh, DJ for Dick Clark, the Dick Clark organization, KMOX in St. Louis. And he was a character and, and, and a fun guy. And, and uh, uh, I'd, I'd been in acting classes, but I'd never been in voiceover classes. And there was, it felt like there was less on the line because you're not being judged for what you look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that's when it began. And I, I, I began at age 30, six years nonstop of studying voiceovers from class to class to class to class because it was fun. You know, you made friends and sometimes producers would come in and, uh, and I ended up spending as much time as I would have spent going to medical school or law school. He got me an agent 
part of the class, which I mean, a lot of people who are listening, I'm sure take voiceover classes. And part of the deal is, you know, you pay for six sessions in a row and you get a free demo at the end or, you know, they let you put your stuff together. And I got with his agent who is named Don Pitts of Abrams Rubeloff. Oh, yeah. And they represent a lot of big voiceover guys and a lot of big actors. And I thought, this is it. I've made it. I'm a made man. And I went in every day and auditioned. And six weeks went by and I scored absolutely nothing. And then the phone stopped ringing. He stopped calling me. I was taking another voiceover class with a, with a dear friend named Rick Kelleher, alias True Don Blue, who was a big-time disc jockey in L.A. and then San Francisco. And he introduced me to his agent, much, much smaller agency that no longer exists. And I went with her and slowly but surely, spot for, buddy, for bloody spot, you know, a month could go by, two months, three months could go by, and then I'd score another little radio spot or a tag or something. And slowly but surely, picture a slow-mo scene of a man whose shirt is worn off in the bed, flying <laughs> his way to the top of a molehill. That was me getting into voiceovers. Was there a moment, though, where you felt like, okay, I've landed? Yes. When I got to L.A. at age, really at age, age 31, just out of pure luck, I had this terrible voiceover demo. And one of my closest friends called me up and said, do you have a voiceover demo? I said, yeah. And I said, why? And he said, well, you remember so-and-so? Well, they just did their first a documentary strip show for ABC Television Network, a show called Heroes of Rock and Roll. It was a one-time thing, and they had tried to get Paul McCartney to host it. They end up with Jeff Bridges as the on-camera host, sort of the, an hour-long history of American rock and roll on broadcast was the show. And he said they presented it to the network, but they forgot to do the bumpers and the billboards. You know, the five-second mediary yeah. announces, you know, ABC Heroes of Rock and Roll brought to you by blah, blah, blah. And so he said, when can you get me the demo? And I ran to his house, gave it to him. He gave it to them. I got a call a day later, and I was called in to a post-production house in Hollywood. And I walk into the studio, and there's 15 people in there. And there's Jeff Bridges in the booth. And the producer immediately says, Mr. Bridges, could you step out of the booth? Uh, we have the announcer here. And I was embarrassed. I mean, I thought, you know, here's this movie star, the, the dude. <laughs> and so uh, he kind of brushes past me. I step in and do my 15 words. You know, Elton John and the Beatles will be back after this. I mean, that's... That's how, that's how important my announce was. And then I step out of the booth and Jeff Bridges, who's towering over me, puts his hand on my shoulder and says, cool voice, man. And I looked up at him and what I should have said was, hey, thank you so much. And, and just floated home. Instead, I made the mistake of every Hollywood wannabe. Oh. Hey, thank you, man. Wow, you know, I, I, you were so great in last picture show. Was it? it was a black or white picture. Didn't Bananovich have, have a hard time finding a place to process the film? And everybody stops and takes a breath. And he looks at me and he goes, shakes his head. And he goes, that's not true. And I went, oh, well, uh, okay. Bye, everybody. And, and, and so it was this mixed feeling of, you know, really profound embarrassment. Bill, remember, next time you meet anybody famous, don't do that. And uh, I don't think there ever was a next time. Uh, but the long and short of it, was I, I got that gig, it ran on network television. I thought this is this is the only chance I have mm-hmm. in Hollywood. This is it. If I don't take advantage of this, mm-hmm. 
So I spent all my money on display ads. I had my girlfriend's brother was taking a photography course in the San Fernando Valley. And I put on a nice leather jacket and a pair of jeans and went out to his studio and lay down on the floor. He said, what are you doing? I said, just take a picture of me with my, with my chin propped in my elbow and, and got the picture from him. And then the ad that I wrote was, looks relaxed, doesn't he? Well, when he stands up to a microphone, he works and works right. Listen for him Tuesday, February 19th on ABC TV, Heroes of Rock and Roll. And then at the bottom in a magazine down here in LA that used to be called Commercials Monthly Magazine and in Variety and a Hollywood Reporter and Ad Age and Ad Week, I put this tiny little display ad with my phone number at the bottom of which said Seeking Representation. And I think I also put SAG after because I was a member. I had, I had joined after because of one little radio commercial I'd done in San Francisco. And then at, at that time, SAG was allowing after members to join. There was like a window of a month when you could join if you could pay the dues. And I got calls. I got calls from John Pitts of David Jubilov. Hey, Bill, I saw your ad. Congratulations. And I got called from a couple of producers and I got some documentary gigs. And the lesson that it taught me was promotion and self-advertising. It's all smoke and mirrors. You don't have to show up at the party and schmooze. All you got to do is, is do whatever you can do to promote your career. Where did that come from? Do you think it was your dad being in business that you had that marketing sense about you? Yeah. In high school, I spent my whole ninth through uh, 12th grade working at ad agencies after school as, as an errand boy. And so I learned, you know, uh, and I would go to this, the seminars and, you know, for the account executives and so on. And I remember paying attention to Variety and Hollywood Reporter and actors who would have a first time appearance on a big a sitcom or a big episodic TV show would take out an ad with their headshot and, you know, Bob Barson appears in blah, 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 Law and Order SVU on Thursday. Uh, his agent is da, da, da. And I always thought these ads looked so kind of humorless and, and unctuous and kind of, please hire me, please hire me. I mean, you know, what else did they have to do? Right. Then I saw an ad for a guy who, uh, some guy's company rented uh, movie equipment, lights, microphones, and so on. And the only photograph was this ridiculously distorted picture of this man with a very big nose in the first place. And with a shot with like a 0.7 millimeter lens and his nose looked even bigger. And I thought, that's funny. And so that's why I had the picture of myself lying down. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I was very lucky to have had a dad who was in advertising. Yeah, and to have that sensibility, because I think a lot of people, maybe not so much now, but for a while in that were in acting, were more came from the place of, you know, God, I hope I get it from chorus line or not having a business acumen. I think that everybody in the arts from painters to singers, to musical comedy people, to dancers, to actors, I think that the, the curricula in high schools and in colleges really lack the business side of it. Absolutely. So actors who live in the bubble first in high school, then in college, then maybe even in graduate school, the bubble where you're almost automatically cast. 
and you're with your dear friends going through this wonderful dreamy journey of being an actor or being a singer or being an artist and suddenly you graduate that bubble is burst and you're out in the cold cruel world and it's something that that should be taught at the college level fortunately you know if you're in chicago or or, or la or new york and even now with with skype and zoom you can talk to you know when you take a voiceover class you're talking about the business part-time you're asking your teacher questions your teacher is is as you and i both know having been voiceover students yeah uh, they're going to talk about the business but the good news is anybody who's ever done telephone sales or anybody who's ever had a sales job in their life is going to have a one notch of advantage over the person who sees themselves as well i'm as art an artist i hate instagram i hate promoting myself i hate sending my demos around well good luck yeah especially now because there's so much noise the spot that put you on the map you were doing bumpers and promo what would you you voice though in many different genres video games commercials is there a particular lane you prefer to work in I, I like I like all of them. I mean, I I think I get very bored. And you know, there are, as you and I both know, there are lots of people, both men and women, who specialize. So and so is a cartoon voice, and, and they, right. they, but wouldn't they have more fun if they were suddenly given an hour long narration on Smithsonian Channel? Mm. You know, it's, it's a challenge. Yeah, I do casual, you know, middle aged person better than hard sell. But to brand yourself as only an animation or only a promo or only a commercial person is really kind of reductive. It's like a dancer going to an audition and saying, well, I really only do Central American folk dancing. Mm. Oh, well, great. Good luck. And for me, I think the thing I do least, perhaps least well, is animation. Although I was flint on G.I. Joe for years. And yeah. five years later, I'm, I'm still asked to go to conventions and sign people's G.I. Joe toys. But And out of that came... Some animation, and I still do. I still do the occasional character for games. Played uh, a Donello Dina and, uh, for three seasons before I was killed off. You know, was in Grand Theft Auto four and five as a radio voice and so on. But my bread and butter is affiliate promo, and I'm still doing promos for the networks and you know, Cartoon Network. I'm on, and you know, for for Turner and and the occasional commercial trailers. I, I love movie trailers. The guys w- who they hire to really do the drama is not me. I end up being the knockoff. <laughs> I'm the guy who, who does, I'm on a, cam now, a campaign now for the kid who would be king, but it's the most, as far as I'm concerned, the most serious kids movie in the history of cinema. <laughs> That's what I get hired for. And it's probably because the age of my voice and the fact that I span, you know, a couple of generations of broadcast where I grew up on this kind of thing and always made fun of it. Hey, Dad, pass the butter. <laughs> so, you know, that's literally what, uh, what I get hired for today. In, 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 uh, and occasionally I'll get a trailer that's, that's kind of low-key and, and ironic. I used to say my favorite thing was doing long-form, long-form narrations. And it is fun. It's hard work. It's, it, storytelling is, is a hard thing to keep it all in, in kind of the same emotional mode for getting hired for a corporate piece, a Panasonic piece, I don't know, selling DVD machines or something. And one of the biggest trailer guys in the world had been hired to do this seven minute piece. And they said, we hired him and he's got such a great voice, but 
we're not going to use it. The, the client wants somebody else. And so we're picking you. And everything he did was like this. The new Panasonic DVD uh. He couldn't get out of his promo trailer mode. And, and I, I realized that that's the job of the voiceover act is to take whatever the gig is and ask yourself, well, what does this character sound like? What does this guy sound like? What is this narrator supposed to sound like? And I'm, I think I, I, I'm really surprised as to, you know, how deeply well-trained, highly experienced announcers and actors can fall into a rut in voiceover. Maybe it doesn't happen in, in, when they're on stage or on camera and acting. But in voiceover, many, many uh, voice actors end up doing the same thing over and over and over. I know that you teach and you have an upcoming workshop with one of my favorite teachers, my favorite teacher, Miss Jody Gottlieb. Can you share what those workshops are going to be about and how you work with students to get them out of that rut? Jody approached me and said, hey, I do this workshop. Uh, would you come and spend an evening with me? And we did at LA Studios uh, a year and a half ago and had a great time. I ran into her at, at uh, our agent's uh, Christmas party and she said, let's do it again. And I said, sure, because it's a chance for me as an artist and sometimes teacher and, and you know, to uh, really explore, you know, what is it in the psyche that, that can produce decent voiceover in someone who's already had, you know, already has the chops and has a voice and has some experience. And so she and I are gonna spend two evenings in March. I believe I'm teaching- Narration and affiliate. Narration and affiliate. What's really interesting to me, what we started out the conversation talking about marketing, it's it's really obviously in the talent agent's interest to market, which most of them do a good job of. They have, each one of them has beautiful websites, but on every talent agent's website, the category of narration is generally not broken down between corporate and documentary. The difference between corporate and documentary is, is like the difference between commercials and animation. Totally. And corporate is very straight. And it's, it's in the word itself is corporate is corporate. Yeah. And documentary narration is much more storytelling and dramatic. Think Smithsonian Channel, think Discovery, think History Channel. Corporate think Bank of America H and R department. So I told my agent, I said, when you put my stuff up, please label it corporate narration and documentary narration. And they did. Not only is there a difference between the two, but they're both difficult genres for voice actors to master. Mm-hmm. If anybody's going to listen to demos, I go I go online and Google Peter Coyote voiceover. Mm. And it'll take you to his demos. And Peter Coyote had an interesting acting career. He was not a huge star. He was a good actor and an interesting voice. He's from Ohio, so he has this kind of flatlands accent. Yet he is the number one voice on PBS and Discovery and probably makes a very handsome living uh, getting uh, celebrity money for, for his documentary narrations. I would just go on, you know, a really good tip for, for voice actors is to go on your own agent site. Google Sutton Barthaminari or Cunningham or Atlas or whomever and listen to, if you're a 36-year-old woman, listen to women who sound like they're your age 
in your casting area. If you're a 54-year-old man, listen to men who are around your age. You know, there is the classic, I don't know uh, uh, how many of, of your listeners have been in the Louvre in Paris, mm. or not, but certainly seen photographs. Throughout the ages, for the last 200 years, in this gigantic 350-year-old museum that was once a uh, home for the royals, Art teachers take their students who bring their uh, tripods and their stools and their canvases and set them down in front of great classic paintings and have them paint them mm. on their own canvases. And that's exactly what I do and what I, what I advise my students to do. Whether you're studying documentary or affiliate promo or cartoon is to sit down and listen for about six seconds at a time Hey, Jimmy, I can't believe that you did that. Oops, watch the guillotine blade. Stop, and then you imitate. Hey, Jimmy, I can't believe that. Oops, watch the guillotine blade, and then go back and back. I can't tell you how many interviews I've seen or heard or read of, you know, the top rock and roll performers in the world uh, who say, oh, I I used to listen to Chuck Berry, you know, when I was 14 years old. And I play that damn record over and over and over. I'll listen to that same gig. You know, wore grooves because they're listening to guitar licks, seven, uh, you know, seconds long. Mm-hmm. And they're playing those notes until they get them and then they move on. Same thing with voiceover. 15 seconds. Why not take six seconds, seven seconds and get a phrase down? Listen to a master who does it. There's a guy named Scott Rummel, who's an old friend who gets, I say jealously, gets every movie trailer and every network promo gig in America. And why? Because he's a chameleon, because he's a brilliant voice actor. He worked in advertising when he was a young kid. I think he was a account executive and a creative and listened to lots of voiceover guys working for his agency and then moved over to the to the light side of voiceovers. <laughs> um, and I will, if I lose a gig to him and I go, I auditioned for that movie trailer, why did he get it? And I'll go on his website or I'll go on the talent agency website and I'll listen to his trailer demo. And I will literally, Walt Disney presents, and I'll go, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have done it sort of more fake dramatic. Walt Disney presents. Oh, that's why I didn't get the gig. So I'll literally imitate him. And it's not, it's not about doing an imitation. It's about internalizing his rhythm. I think that's really important that you just said that because for a while I was thinking as you were talking, geez, I wonder what someone would say though, because you hear all this buzz now of we want your authentic voice. Where's the real voice? Have your voice come through. But what you're saying is get that rhythm in you because we get, we habituate patterns. That's a really interesting point. The authentic voice. And that's what makes voiceovers so hard. If people are listening to the podcast are having any success in voiceover. The good news is you're having some success in voiceover. The other good news is 99.9% of people who want to will not because of the deep complexity of the idea of mixing what is the commercial sound that they're looking for and your authentic voice. How could I possibly do that at the same time? How could I imitate Scott Rummel Walt Disney Presents, instead of Walt Disney Presents. How can I do what is an acceptable read that the studios want, that the networks want, that the stations want, that the ad agencies want? That it, because this is a commercial business. Right. 
I hate to say it, it ain't art. It's commercial art. And there are trends that the copywriters are looking for you to bow to. So how do you mix doing that, giving a good commercial read without it sounding pat, without it sounding generic? How do you inject your personality, your, as you said, authentic voice into that? That's the trend. What do you think that answer is? What you hear in default reads, what you hear in default reads is something that's very inauthentic. A lot of people, guys who are on the radio will suddenly talk like this. Right. Or suddenly with this mid-Atlantic accent. I said, why are you talking that way? It comes down to the question of what is this character supposed to sound like? What am I supposed to sound like? What should I sound like? And at that point, you need to kind of go unconscious about all the tips that you have ever gotten. Yeah. It's like Tiger Woods, you know, who is winning, winning every uh, professional golf tournament in the history of golf, went through a crisis, a professional crisis. His coach and he decided that he needed to change his golf swing. I forget if it was changing from the overlap lap grip to the baseball grip or vice versa. And it caused him to lose millions of dollars for a couple of years. He wanted more power and more distance on his drive. So he changed his technique consciously and had to endure, you know, the jibes of critics and golf fans everywhere. What happened? Hey, Tiger, what happened? And eventually he caught back up and was able to drive the ball 50 yards further. So he was probably thinking for two and a half years as he was losing tournaments, on the finger, the golf, the grip, as actors, as voice actors do, okay, use your upper register, um, grant yourself, smile, all these things. And at some point, you already know that stuff. At some point, I mean, for me, after six years, and I'm not exaggerating, of workshops, probably 40 nights a year, after six years, if I don't know those prompts subconsciously, yeah, then I should probably get my massage license. So at that point, in the gig, in the audition, you've got to go, forget the prompts. You're going to do it. Trust yourself. You're going to do it automatically and just go for it. And just look for your authentic voice. How should this woman sound? How should this guy sound? And just shape it emotionally. Voiceover is a very deeply intuitive and very complex business where you have to be able to suddenly just turn off your brain and go, okay, close your eyes, open your mouth and talk. Don't think, just speak. The difficulty is at the same time as you're just as you're not thinking and you're just speaking. Your job is to be a likable person if you're a spokesman, not if you're a bad guy in a cartoon. Your job is also in a commercial or a, a, a corporate narration to sell something at the same time that you're being a believable, likable person. And unlike dramatic acting or cartoon acting, where you've got one gig, which is to be angry at the spaceship that just you know killed your leader, you've got a more complex job as a voiceover person. Be a likable, almost magnetic spokesperson. And at the same time, you're selling the heck out of that. Bank of America HR really believes in you. So how can folks learn more about you? BillRetner.com. And the good news is I have absolutely nothing to sell. <laughs> well, Unless, you have a fabulous workshop, and I know you don't have it to sell, but it is going to be, I'm taking it, and you can learn more about that from Bill and his website or going to Jody at Jody Gottlieb, 
vo.com. So my last question for you, Maya Angelou says words mean more than what is put down on paper. It takes the human voice to infuse them with deeper meaning. So with that, Bill, what do you hope your voice conveys in work as well as in life? I had a a friend of mine bought me a session with a psychic uh, years and years ago. And I thought, okay, here we go. But she'd already paid for it. So I went. And this is a very interesting uh, older woman um, who wasn't, you know, telling the future. Right. She did not know what I did for a living at the time I was working in radio, but she had no idea. And she said, you know, it's, it's interesting. People trust your voice. Mm. And she said, you have to be careful what you tell them. And um, I knew a guy who was an officer in our union in Screen Actors Guild after, uh, who was in the Washington, D.C. market. And uh, he, he was a member of the Republican Party. And I thought, that's interesting. He's a Republican, but he said he was a really a very uh, loyal union member and, and, and union activist. And um, I said, so Washington, in the Washington market, most of the market there is political stuff. He said, yeah, that's where the big political agencies are doing candidates and, and you know, proposition ballot campaigns on TV and radio. And I said, so do you do only Republican stuff? And he said, oh, no, no, I'll do it all. I went, really? Wow. And NPR did a story on two guys who were big political voices in Washington, D.C., and, and they asked him the same question. Oh, no, we'll do whatever, uh, independent, Republican, Democrat. And I thought, well, maybe it's because I have the luxury of saying no. But for me to lend my voice to something that is designed to get people to vote a certain way that I didn't believe in, I, 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 it, it gives me a kind of a creepy feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I have to rationalize, okay, do, do I believe that working for, for Toro lawnmowers or Toyota automobiles, uh, is this an ethically uh, proper thing to do? Why not? I work, in, I work in advertising. Advertising, consuming, and marketing. This is what makes uh, American capitalism so fun. <laughs> uh, so if, if, if I were a genuine, uh, you know, socialist, uh, I probably would have to become, a, you know, a massage therapist. But because I have this kind of childlike fascination for the marketplace and because I grew up, uh, you know, in a country where uh, consumption and marketing and advertising and manufacturing uh, are what make the country go and I want to make a living, I'm a part of it. And then the other part of it is um, I'm a commercial craftsman and I love my craft. Mm. Uh, I won't practice it for absolutely. I don't do religious stuff, for instance, religious left or right or mm-hmm. or Jewish or Muslim or Scientology. I won't do any of it simply not because I hate it, but simply because let somebody who's a believer do it. It's just not my place. So uh, what Maya Angelou says is absolutely true. And Don LaFontaine, the, the late great Don LaFontaine, yeah the greatest voice career, none of which we will ever see again, said, just take a book of poetry down in your studio and and read it aloud to yourself and do it from the heart. Mm. And um, I thought either I could blow this off or realize I was listening to a true master. 
And so I did. So I have books of poetry on my shelf that I occasionally will pull out just to sort of clear my brain. Not because I, 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 I absolutely love to read poetry, but to, to change it up so that I can take words, as Maya Angelou says, and try to infuse them with, with some kind of feeling, some kind of intuitive richness. I love that. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Welcome, Tina. I love that Bill reads poetry in his booth. I read children's stories to my son. I think I'm going to start to bring poetry, though, into the booth. Thanks for listening in. Until next week, here's to owning our voices.